we're in that section of um, the book of Colossians. We're still in chapter 1, but Paul is, is contrasting, and this is really, really important, and that's what this chart tries to show, contrasting what the Colossians used to be, verse 21, and what they are now, verse uh, 22b. And the difference is the reconciling work of Jesus, 22a. And so let's just review that one more time. By means of application for you and me, you could say this applies to you as well. This applies to all people. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've experienced the benefits of his reconciling work. You used to be alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's our past. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's his reconciling work. We discussed that at length last week. I, I don't want to go over that again unless you have questions. But he is bringing, we did, Christ or God did not move, we did. And he's bringing us back. Our rebellion and sin, we have, we're alienated from God. We don't have anything to do with him. Christ makes it possible for us to come back. And the result is, that's another threefold characteristic where we were alienated hostile in mind and doing evil deeds we're now holy blameless and above reproach now that there's a word there that you need to make sure you have and maybe i'll even write it up here a word that you really need to make sure you have and understand this is our position this is a result of God's word of justification. Now, we have talked about that before, so that hopefully is not a new word to you. But our, as a result of our justification, this is our position. This is how God looks at us. We're holy, we're blameless, and we're above reproach. I, gotta, I just tripped over this, and that I don't want to do. Okay? <clears throat> um I guess I'll ask, are there any questions? Do you understand that? Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Good to have you here. You. Have you been here before? No. Okay. What's your name? My name's Bill Reese. Hi, Bill. This is the group. <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That's good. <laughs> it's a wonderful group. It really is. But... Um, this is a, I mean, it's, it's an amazing two verses. I mean, it really is. It so succinctly summarizes what Jesus Christ's work does. His reconciling work transforms people who used to be alienated, hostile, and man doing evil deeds into people positionally that are holy, blameless, and above reproach. Isn't that amazing that God can do that miracle of salvation? And, and that's, that's how he summarizes it. Okay. Fred wanted me to... Huh? What's that? We rejoice in that. Absolutely. Fred wanted to make sure I started there, so I always do what he tells me to do, so I started there. But that is important for the next verse, verse 22, uh, sorry, verse 23, because Paul now begins to transition from here's Jesus, 1, 15 through 20. Here's his reconciling work, now, Paul begins to transition to how do I, meaning Paul, how do I fit into this? That's really where he's going. You with me? Yeah. 
So if you, you, you look at verse 23, let me read it and we'll go back and take it apart. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, stead, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. So I want you, I want to draw your attention to the, and I'm sure all of your translations have this, the first word of verse 23, if. Okay? Now, uh, do the best you can to hang with me here, because I want to explain something grammatically. When you and I um, use the word if in English conversation, in just our conversation, and we say, if you do this, what, what kind of a phrase or clause are we introducing? If you... Condition. A condition. And the idea is, if you don't do this, then this won't happen. Now, okay, you can't necessarily, when you see a translation from the Greek into English, assume that with all if clauses. Okay? So... Now, again, let me make another statement, and I'll get you a little more confused. In Greek, in the Greek language, there are three types of if clauses. You'll always remember that. The first one is called a first-class condition. So that if clause, now listen, this is a very important sentence, assumes this to be true. This is verse 23 is a first class condition clause so you could legitimately translate that if since it in other words what he's about to say isn't conditional it's assumed to be true it's a way of saying since this is true you with me so, I mean, we can, we can talk like that in our language, too, in English, not quite as commonly as the Greeks did. But the, and you would just see it by the type of word that's used in the Greek language. You would immediately, oh, that's a first-class condition. I'm to assume this to be true. So, if indeed you continue in the faith, since you are continuing the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope that you heard. In other words, Paul is saying... This is who you are, 22b, and should it, it should affect how you live, and I'm assuming that you're going to continue in the faith, and that your continuing the faith is going to be characterized by stability, steadfastness, and hope. Now, hang with me. Let's turn that around. The key to continuing in the faith is you're stable, you're steadfast, and you have hope. Now, have I confused you, or are, are you with me? Okay, so let's look at that. Stable, steadfast. Think with me, think with me about that. Stable, steadfast. What, what is that communicating? Stable, steadfast. Consistency and constant. Okay. Just well grounded. Well grounded. It, it doesn't refer to how you walk. It doesn't refer to how you sit. It doesn't refer. It's it's referring to your spiritual stability, your spiritual steadfast. 
Now, spiritual stability and a spiritual steadfastness is tied into what you believe, isn't it? Yes, and then, and then this hope, could, we could substitute your belief. Well, your belief that produces a hope. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't want to. I want to make belief and hope synonyms, Woody. Faith and stable belief. Stable and steadfast belief, not shifting. Right. In other words, stable, steadfast. You're not shifting. You're, as the wind blows doctrinally, you're not being blown away. It's stable and steadfast. You know what you believe. You know why you believe it, and that produces spiritual stability. Spiritual steadfastness, steadfastness. You're digging your boots, so to speak, deep in the ground. You're not going to be blown off balance. And the result of that is you're not shifting your hope. Your hope that the gospel produces. Hope is a future word. Uh, my, I studied under a guy who defined it as expectancy with desire. You have an expectancy with desire that Christ is going to come back and fulfill his promises to you. So, you know, Paul is, Paul is saying something that you have to take apart. Since I'm assuming this to be true in your life, that you will continue in the faith, that you will continue in the belief that you have and all the promises that God has made to you, the stability and steadfastness that that produces, which fosters the ongoing hope, which is the key to your life. People cannot live without hope. If you do not have the hope that the promises God has made to you, if you do not have that hope, you easily give up. I have a very, very, very dear friend, very close friend of mine who has uh, cancer is just spreading all through his body and he's He's under some special, unique uh, radiation treatment by a pill that is new. It's, it's uh, experimental, and he's agreed to be tested on it. It's supposed to attack every cancer cell in the body and kill it. But the side effects are horrible. He's had two of five treatments, and they're the horrible side effects. It makes him, anyway. And, you know, the thing that he, he and I talk to him or email or text almost every day at one or the other just to see how he's doing. And uh, he just always thanks me, one, for the prayers that Peggy and I pray for him every morning. But secondly, he says, if I did not have the, my hope in Jesus, I couldn't get up in the morning. Amen. Even I get up and throw up and feel nauseous all day if I didn't have the hope in Jesus. My friend is keying in on what Paul is saying here. It is his hope that helps to produce the steadfastness and stability that enables you to continue in the faith. In other words, since I'm assuming you're not going to give up, that you're going to remain stable and steadfast, always characterized by hope of the gospel that you heard, which is spreading throughout the world, and Paul says, by the way, I'm a minister of that hope. Which is transitioning to verse 24, where he talks about himself. All right. So your assignment for next week is, paraphrase verse 23 in your own words. 
Put it in your own words and apply it to yourself. Is that true of you? Because the reconciling work of Jesus has done this. Here's what you used to be. Christ's reconciling work on the cross and shed blood and resurrection, etc., which produces your new position, your holy blindness above reproach. That's who you are. That's your new identity. Therefore, it should affect how you live. What does that mean? Well, since I assume you're going to continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, with hope that comes from the God, not shifting, not being blown away every time some new doctrine or new tragedy happens in your life, because that's what the gospel produces. And so it's just, it's a, it's a, a um, what's the word I'm searching? A refreshing reminder of how the gospel should affect how we live. It's not just some intellectual exercise, it's a transformational exercise that results in true life change. Revolutionary, radical life change. I'm rereading, uh, I think I mentioned that last week, I'm rereading a classic that I had read and studied in graduate school but called Evangelism in the Early Church by a British guy named Michael Green. It's a tremendous book. And I just reread the chapter, oh, Tuesday, I think, in my office. I was just uh, trying to reread a chapter each day. But anyway, he just talks about something. I would, it was good for me to read that. Because I think there's a tremendous comparison between the first century church, for example, in Corinth, and the 21st century church in America. There's a tremendous parallel there. They lived in a cesspool, morally and ethically. They lived, I mean, tr- unbelievable immorality all around them, total corruption, lack of ethics, Talk about draining a swamp. There was a terrible swamp in Corinth. Well, that's America. America is prosperous, just like Corinth was. Seemingly wealthy and affluent, you scratch the surface, you see monumental problems. That's the, that's the way America is today. So we can learn from that. And Green says in the book, you know, it's really important for you to remember a couple of things. Number one, the Greco-Roman person really didn't have a faith and trust in their gods. They just went through the motions to placate their gods. I mean, they really didn't. They didn't have a personal relationship with Zeus, a personal relationship with Apollo or Venus. You follow me? Secondly, the Greco-Roman worldview, they made no connection between their belief system and ethics. And I'm getting a little sophisticated here, but do you understand? I mean... What you believed about your gods really didn't have any relationship with how you lived. It really didn't. And so into this comes Christianity. And you, you think about that like you read in Acts 17 where Paul's in Athens. But into it comes Christianity and saying, listen, I want to tell you, the God I represent has no resemblance to your gods at all. He's a personal God. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. That's why he created you. He's concerned about everything you do. And there is a tight connection between what you believe and how you live. Belief system is tied to ethics because it matters to God how you live. And the the Greco-Roman people are saying, what? We've never heard of anything like that. What are you talking about? And so they start to see the early, this is another thing Green talks about. They start to see the early church. And this this is still in the first century. But even in the early church, when a plague hits the town, everybody runs from the hills. What do the Christians do? They stay and care for the sick. They see the church 
because the Greco-Roman world was very much a throwaway culture. You don't like your kids, you put them out in the mountain and let them die. The early church would go out and rescue those babies. And they're seeing people living totally different than anybody else around them. And so they're seeing the connection between what you believe and how you live is real. Belief and ethics are tied together. And so the, the revolutionary dynamic of the church, and they see the church caring for and ministering to the poor, which the Greco-Roman world could have cared less about. What's the church doing? It had a social conscience that's transforming society. And I'm saying on that because in a real sense, you and I have to re-examine how is the early church doing this? Because they lived in the same kind of culture you live in. Sexually, it's a cesspool. Corruption, ethical, fraudulent behavior, corrupt nature. And you see, my goodness, can we learn from that? And that's what Green's trying to do in that book. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You are being transformed, and I want you to continue. Stable, steadfast, people of hope. Not shifted. Paul, uh, Jim. So verse 22 really describes justification as our position. It does. It does. <clears throat> the results of our justification. And then verse 23, maybe I'm the only one in this room that occasionally has doubts where my faith isn't as strong as it ought to be. If everyone's honest, they're with you. I'm with you. Okay. So, no matter where my faith is, has no impact on verse 22. Correct? Correct. Correct. How you feel has no relationship to your position. But, so he's describing a desired position or action for me. I guess I'm trying to struggle because sometimes, I'll give you an example. I spoke with a young man um, yesterday morning, as a matter of fact, who has four four young children, three of them have cystic fibrosis. He frankly said to me, look, I'm struggling in my faith right now, but how this could happen to my children who I love, who are innocent, you know. And I, I don't know if he can say he's firmly established and not move from hope. And I wouldn't know what to, I don't quite know what to say to him. Uh, except that well, there are those. I do, oh, totally. I've, I've been where you are in talking with people that are in situations similar to that. And uh, there is no easy, you know, here are three bullet points, go home and bless you. It, you know, it's really, this is a struggle. We live in a fallen, broken world, and believers are not immune to that. And a fallen, broken world means there's going to be disease, there's going to be tragedy, there's going to be accidents. That's, that's the world we live in. Jesus is fixing it, but it's going to take him, his return for it to be completed. Jim, I don't mean to, to make it so simple that it's almost ridiculous, but Bill Bright years ago compared the Christian life to an engine, a train. And you love trains. It's a train. And he says... A train is driven by an engine. For the Christian life, what's the engine of your life? Is it feelings or is it faith? And his argument was the engine that drives your life is faith. Feelings are the caboose. 
what we often do, understandable, it's not a criticism, but what we often do is shift the two. And we make feelings the engine driving of our life. And what Paul is saying, here's your position. That doesn't have anything to do with how you feel this morning. Or your wife has just died. Or your children have just contracted or been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Or whatever the horrible calamity is. That doesn't affect your position. God understands your feelings. And God is a God of comfort, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the comfort of God is something that's immeasurable, incomprehensible, indescribable. But God knows, in the second chapter of Hebrews, fourth chapter of Hebrews, in all ways Jesus is like us and he knows what it's like to suffer, to be lonely, to hurt. Now, they're all the truths, they're all the facts they're all the, the truth claims of Scripture. And for a person like your friend whom you talked with the other day is an example of their experiencing the roller coaster dimensions of living, of life, and it's hard. Among other things, I'm sure you're doing this, your prayer is, Lord, strengthen this guy's faith. Help him to remember who he is. And from eternity's perspective, from eternity's perspective, God's going to make all this right. But still, I mean, there are things that he, he knows that, I'm sure. But what read 23 and see it as an instruction rather than a statement of where you are? You should continue in your faith. You should continue. You don't, don't, this is not an original statement. With you. Don't give up on God because he hasn't given up on you. I mean, it's, but it, it, the doubt, doubts are real. Os Guinness, a number of years ago, wrote a great little book, and the title of the book is Doubt. And part of Guinness's argument is God uses doubt to strengthen our faith because we have doubts. And among other things, your friend is saying, is my God really good? I mean, he, maybe he didn't say it. Maybe he didn't articulate it that way. But in a very real sense, that's part of what he's struggling with. My, did you say all four of his children have cystic? Three. Three of his four have cystic fibrosis. Okay. Naturally, I mean, if I was a dad, I would ask, wow, is God really good? Three of my kids have cystic fibrosis. Joe could ask that too. God really good? All my kids are dead. Mm-hmm. They're dead. All, all ten of his kids. Every evidence of God's material blessing in Job's life was gone. All he was left... When you have a Job experience, mm-hmm. and, that's, when, that's when the test comes. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, when, that's when you're going to question. Yeah. And that's Satan's number one sentence, actually. It is, is God really good? That's what he, that's what he confronted Eve with. He said, listen, Eve, mm-hmm. listen, is God really good? He's trying to keep this from you. He doesn't He's have trying your... to keep knowledge and... Uh, from he, you, and so he must not be good. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. Yeah. You know, when I look at my circumstances in an instant, you know, just that point in time, the questions come. Yeah. But as you look at it from the perspective of time, maybe look back over, you see God's wisdom, yeah. God's goodness, but it's, it's always at that moment of crisis. Or question mm. that, Understandably so, absolutely. 
we have a very uh, really really close friend of Peggy's. I uh, regard him as friends too. But a number of years ago, she was in an automobile accident. A guy who was texting hit her. It was a horrible thing. And um, as a result of that, among other injuries, the one that's endured is her nerve from basically her neck all the way down the right side of her body. She is in constant pain, constant pain. And every time Peggy calls her, she says, where's the pain today? Oh, it's a three or four. Most of the times it's an eight. She used to live with that. But I want to tell you, we've known them now for a number of years. And this, they will tell us this. We go out there uh, uh, frequently, and Peggy talks with her at least once a week. And this is what they say. We would never have grown this close to Jesus Christ if this hadn't happened. Now, that's a fact. Now, when she's in the agony, some nights she can't sleep very well because of the pain. And so, but have there been doubt? Oh, yeah, really, a lot of them. But just to hear them, I mean, Peggy and I have observed it. And there's no doubt what God has done in their life in terms of their faith and their walk with him. And so you look from eternity's perspective, God is saying, now, please make sure you hunt your own thing. From eternity's perspective, God is saying, this was good for you. Now, isn't that horrible? I mean, humanly speaking, you can't say that. Let me give you another illustration. Um, Johnny Erickson Todd, every, every, you all know her name. Do you know who she is? When she was a teenager, she was swimming, and she dove into a, 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 a lake river area, and she broke the vertebrae in her neck. I think it was the fourth vertebrae. So she's paralyzed from the neck down. And in her, in her book, uh, A Step Further, she goes through how she was angry with God, doubted his goodness, and all of that. I mean, she, got, she went through all, she went through faith healers, everything. And she ended up, she was so angry at God, she said, I've become an atheist. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, that didn't last real long. But she came to the point where she understood, okay, this is what God has permitted me. What does he want me to do with this? And again, if you don't know who she is, I'll, I'll tell you. The most fantastic thing about Johnny Erickson Tata is she now has a unique ministry to disabled people. and Impacting disabled people all over the world. It's incredible ministry she had. And she says, if I had not become a quadriplegic, I would never have developed this ministry because it's unique. How many people are ministering to disabled people? Very few. And then she made this extraordinary statement. I have come to the conclusion that being a quadriplegic is a good gift from a good God. You can't say that without the hope of the gospel. You can't say something like that. The world is going to look at that and say, you have a mean God. What good God would ever do that to a young teenage girl at the beginning of her adult life? That's right. But she's, uh, she's in her 50s now. Maybe she's even close to 60. I'm not sure how old she is. But she has an incredible ministry. She has a, actually, she has a big ministry this fall out at Maranatha Bible Camp in western Nebraska. It's for the families of, care, of, of, of children who are uh, disabled. And anyway, it's telling you more than you need to know. But there are the things, Jim, that you, 
you face that personally. You did, I know, when your wife passed away with cancer. But in, in just people's lives, as you get to know them, they're the kinds of things that naturally come up. And sometimes it's just to listen to them. Just listen, cry with them, pray with them, and allow God to help them keep stable, keep steadfast, keep energized by hope, not shifting. Oh, oh, I can't, uh, I can't imagine what that would be like as a parent to have three of your children because that going to affect them the rest of their lives. And if I'm, they don't, typically a cystic fibrosis child doesn't live a, yeah, a full life usually. So, oh, yeah. Great. Thank you for bringing that up, Jen. It's an appropriate way to work through a verse like this. Okay? All right, Paul has introduced, and that's why I said the transition he makes is, of which I have become a minister, at the end of verse 23. So, what I want to do, uh, and I used up all of Joel's paper. Bruce Lawrence is very angry with him because he's using that But what I did here, I tried to give you a way of analyzing verse 24 through 29. So can, let me walk through this, and then we'll go back and take it apart. So he, he mentioned the end of uh, verse 30, uh, verse 23, of which I'm a minister. The very first thing he's going to say is, I have a ministry of suffering which is really an unusual way to talk about it. But we, go, excuse me, we, have to, we have to discuss this because he says, I am doing my part in filling up the suffering of Christ. What in the world does that mean? We'll deal with that. And then secondly, he speaks of his ministry as a stewardship. And I wrote this simply just for your own understanding, but it's kind of an interesting word. The word for stewardship in the New Testament, oikonomeia, what word did we get in English from that? Anybody figured it out? Oikonomia? Pardon? I'm not hearing. Okay. No. (laughs) That's a good guess. If I put an E in front of it, what would you say? Economy. Economy. We get our word economy from this. Because economy is to be good management of resources. Now, the United States of America isn't doing a real good job of managing our resources if you looked at the debt thing lately. But anyway, well, economy sees my ministry is not a ministry of suffering, it's a stewardship from God. And it has two parts to it. And that's what I want to talk about. What are the two parts? Proclaim the word of God to grow you guys. Not that's a pithy summary. We'll get to each one of those. All right, so that's a way of taking these verses and giving a little structure to it. So let's look at verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's sort of an extraordinary, astonishing statement, isn't it? Now, you you guys went through the book of Acts. Didn't we go through the book of Acts? Yeah. Yeah, you went through the book of Acts. What were some of the things that happened to Paul? His sufferings. He's beaten. Shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. Prison. He got in prison. Stone. Stone. List, remember, he was stoned, and they thought he was stoning to death. I mean, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he lists all of his sufferings, verse after verse after verse. So he says, 
I rejoice in my suffering. True or false? I could put my name there in a That I, Fred Scott, I, Woody, I, Joel, I, Ed, rejoice in my suffering. If you would say that to me, I would say, you're probably a liar. <laughs> you really don't mean that. Why would he say something so audacious? I rejoice in my suffering. You saw the other side of him. What was the He had the hope of the gospel. He had the future perspective on things. It's all within the other side. What had his sufferings produced? Established church after church after church after church. In heaven, when we get there, we're going to see, you know, I can't give you a finite number, I have no idea, but I'm guessing we're going to see tens of thousands of people in heaven because of Paul. I mean, directly, you know, millions indirectly because of his writings, hundreds of millions, but directly in terms of um, the results of his missionary journeys. Thousands and thousands of people because of Paul's sufferings. Remember when we, I think we studied, uh, when we studied uh, in, in, in the missionary journey when they're in Philippi, I think it's uh, Acts 16, when they're in Philippi and they get thrown into prison and the earthquake comes, but before the earthquake, what does it say he and Silas were doing? Praying, Praying and singing hymns to the Lord. Now, I know I can say this with absolute certainty. If I were in a dungeon, which is what the prison was, with rats and cockroaches all around me, and it's damp and the moisture is dripping on my head, I would not be praising the Lord and singing hymns. I'd be saying, woe is me, Lord, why did you put me here? I mean, and I, none of you can identify with that because you would all be just like Paul. But it's the kind of, it's the kind of thing where you have to step back and say, this is an absolutely astonishing statement. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He will tell the Philippians, I'm in jail. In Philippians chapter 1, I'm in jail, but you know it's really good I'm there. Because the gospel is going out. There are members of the Praetorian Guard that have heard about Jesus. And people who were my colleagues, they're not taking my place. So it's good that I'm here. It's multiplying. Paul had such a different perspective of things than you and I do often. Now here... Uh, in, our, in our local jails, too, we have, I think, these jail prison ministries where some of these uh, prisoners become uh, born-again believers, and there they are with, with captives that can't get out, uh, and they're sharing their faith by their conduct and by their words. Absolutely. And, and uh, so... It's not a magnitude of Paul's necessarily, but it's, the gospel is alive and well in the hearts of prisoners. Absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, was in prison ministry in Pennsylvania and here in Omaha, Douglas County for a while, and I discovered two things. Guys are most, it was always with men, are most vulnerable in prison. Because, I mean, they, they have no hope, and they're really open to the gospel. And the second thing I observed is every one of them, when they get out, wants to be a pastor. I mean, it's really, 
which is good. I mean, it's really good because they want to tell what's happened to them. And some have become really neat and real neat ministry. Let me continue now because there's a little bit of, uh, in your notes I tried to talk a little bit about that. And in my flesh, meaning, you know, his body, as he's his, in his life, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, when you read that in English, you think, good night. The filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, ESV has chosen to translate that word afflictions. Some translations just have sufferings. So, I want to make a two. I want to make three comments, and if you're really tightly following your notes, I have three: one, two, three, and blank spaces. Now, I want to make three comments about that, and if you're really interested in it, I'll repeat it. But first of all, the word that is translated sufferings or afflictions here is never used of Christ's sufferings on the cross. It's not the word that's used of Jesus on the cross. Do you understand? It's not the word that's used of hanging on the cross, dying on the cross, and so on. Number two, the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary is complete. It's once for all. Hebrews 9.28, 1 Peter 3.18. There's nothing about Jesus' work that needs to be completed. It's completed. Because at first, well, then his suffering, his work isn't completed. I'm helping to complete it. The third thing, and this is perhaps what is most relevant, the sufferings of Jesus' church are the sufferings of Jesus. In Paul's life, where did he hear that? When Paul meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, what does Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting me? Was Paul persecuting the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh? No. What was he persecuting? The church. And so as the church is being persecuted and suffered, Christ is being persecuted and suffered. Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, you know, that is what begins to change Paul's life. And he's transformed into the great apostle, Paul. So Paul is saying this. I am contributing to the suffering of the church. I'm doing my part in the suffering of the church, which is Christ's suffering. The church has, as the church has proclaimed the gospel, as the church has lived out the gospel, it has been persecuted. It has suffered. And Paul is saying, that's a given. I know that, Paul is saying. I heard my Savior say that. So I'm doing my part as a minister of the gospel of suffering in the name of Jesus, suffering for his sake, filling up what is just occurring throughout the world. And that the, 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 unique, the really unique and quite significant historical fact is that as the church suffers and persecutes, it's spread. Did you understand that sentence? Mm -hmm. As the church suffers and is persecuted, it spreads. Tertullian, one of the great leaders of the second century church, said the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. And that was historical fact. As you try to wipe out the church, 
it spreads because you make the decision, if this is true, am I willing to die for it? And as people see the incredible temerity and courage and steadfastness of Christians, they say, there's something about this. And um, you, you've heard, I'm sure you know this. When Mao Zedong became head of the People's Republic of China, October the 1st, 1949, his first mission was to exterminate Christianity from China. Because Hudson Taylor and many other missions had just saturated China with the gospel. And so he took out, he, he slaughtered ultimately 60 million people in his consolidation of power. About 10 million of that 60 million were Christians. And he wiped out Christianity in China, right? <laughs> Under Deng Xiaoping, when China began to open up, they discovered there are 150 million Christians in China. Did Mao Zedong succeed? No. As they were persecuted, they became even more committed and more and more people came to Christ. And today, that's the struggle right now in China. Xi Jinping is trying to, well, we approve of these state churches, but these underground house churches, we want to wipe them out. They're trying to do that. Is he succeeding? No, he's not succeeding. I uh, minister at a Chinese church here in town occasionally, and they're very involved in a lot of things that are going on in the underground church over there in China. And stories are absolutely incredible, amazing what's happening in China. You don't hear about it in the news, even if you watch Fox News, which most of you do. You don't hear it on Fox News. But you, when you start to really dig into what God is doing, when there's persecution and suffering, it, it seems counterintuitive, but the church grows. I, I said in a, in a meeting of uh, Chinese uh, people who were Christians, and there were probably 12 on the table, Each one of them had a story of their persecution, and their faith was extremely strong, and because of persecution, that they had Absolutely. the word for their faith. Absolutely. I was going to say something, but I'm not going to say that. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, I don't want to create another bunny trail. We've had enough of them this hour. Do, do you need to talk with me anymore about verse 24? Paul sees part of his ministry as a ministry of suffering. For the sake of the believers, for the sake of the church. Now, for you and me in North America, to, to be quite frankly, uh, bold and, and almost audacious too, you and I have no idea what that means. You have absolutely no idea what it means. We don't suffer for our faith in the United States. Now, that may be changing, and that may change down the road. <clears throat> Peggy and I often talk about what our children, and now we have two grandchildren, what our children and grandchildren are going to face in 30 years. I mean, I expect, I mean, I, well, I don't want to live to be 102 which would be 30 years from now. If I'm still alive at 102, I'm going to say, Lord, if you don't take me home, no, anyway, I don't want to live that long. But anyway, so but just go out 30 years and try to think. Unless the Lord in his grace sends a massive revival to the United States, 
our kids are going to face, and our grandkids in particular, are going to face something very different than what you and I face. I'm astonished at what's happened. I never thought I would see some of the things I'm seeing culturally right now in the United States. I never thought I'd live to see it. And it's, it's almost shocking because the secu secularism has, tr has triumphed in our country. That's the reigning worldview. Well, anyway, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. We may, maybe our kids will experience some suffering that we've never experienced. Now, verse 25. If you don't have any questions about the suffering, I'm going to leave that. I want to key in, in verse 25, of which I became a minister, the same word as in the end of verse 23. The word is actually diakonos. We get our word deacon from that. But then he says, according to a stewardship from God. So there's the word stewardship, or economian. We get our word economy from that. It's a stewardship from God. When you hear the English word stewardship, what comes to your mind? What, how strong of a word is that? What, what, what's the content of that word to you? Caretaker. Caretaker. Caretaker? Superintendent. 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 Okay. Fiduciary. Ah, only a banker would say that. <laughs> Fiduciary. Yes. Fiduciary has very much the idea of trust, doesn't it? Yeah. Very much... You know, a, 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 an elder or a, a board member of an organization has a fiduciary responsibility to the stakeholders, to the government, to etc. So when Paul says, my ministry is a stewardship from God, God has entrusted something to me. God has given me a caretaker superintending responsibility and I am accountable to him for how I carry it out. Right? Mm -hmm. So when he says a stewardship from God, God has entrusted something to him. God has given him an immense responsibility as, 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 as a, a key individual but Paul, and he says this, I am accountable to God. I am accountable to you, he will say, to, to his followers and so on. But I'm primarily accountable to God. And so it's important for you and me to understand that. If you own a piece of property, and most of you have a home here, that's a stewardship from God. Would you agree with that? Please agree with that, because that is true. God has stewarded that, make that into a verb. He's stewarded. He's given you that. He's trusted you with that. What does he expect you to do? Take care of it. Manage it well. I'm serious. God has given you um, a reasonable amount of physical health. I'm the oldest person in this room, so you know my health is... <laughs> I'm still good. I'm doing well when I'm starting to, when I get up in the morning, ugh, that leg hurts and my back where I had a herniated disc a year ago. Ugh, but I'm doing much better. But it's still, I'm getting old. I'm starting to feel it. You know, but it's, it's, it's a stewardship. My body's a stewardship. What does he do? He expects me to take care of it. Um, your time. Is that a stewardship? Yes. Every one of us has exactly the same 24 hours. How you steward that is important to God. And so Paul will say in another place to Scripture, 
An element of stewardship is this. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. That's a stewardship. I do everything to God's glory. What's the first one? 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's a stewardship issue. It's not about me. It's about him. And so Paul says, my stewardship was given to me for you. That is, to make the word of God fully known. That's verse 25 through 20. It involves the word of God. Part of my stewardship responsibility, as Paul is saying here, is to make to make the word of God known. Let me continue. To make the word of God fully known, that is, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And you say, wait a minute, mystery? And when you read that, you're thinking of Agatha Christie, or you're thinking of the greatest television program ever on, Columbo. That's mystery. That's not what it means. That's part of the challenge. What we're doing is we're transliterating a Greek term, musterion, and bringing it into English letter for letter. And so when you read mystery, you're thinking, oh, that's something that has something to do with Poirot. In Murder on the Orient Express, which is a great book and a great movie, you don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, that's not what he means. It's something that was hidden. Something that was hidden, but is now revealed to his saints. What's the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations? Now, you have to think about this, but it isn't hard. The answer isn't hard. But what's been hidden for generations and ages? Jews and Gentiles serving God. Jews and Gentiles equally serving God. Well, the whole covenant relationship of God in all areas, Abraham, Davidic, and, and New. How about the person? Christ. Christ. Jesus. Prophesied. 357 prophecies about the first day and night of Jesus in the Old Testament. But you leave the book of Malachi, do you know who it is? No, you don't know who it is. You know, I mean, the Jews are looking for him. They know he's coming. He's called Messiah, but they don't know who it is. What's the very first verse of the New Testament? This is Jesus Christ. The genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Son of David, son of Abraham. So the, the mystery is that's been hidden is now revealed. It's Jesus. It's the plan of redemption centered in Jesus. And it's the result, Jew and Gentile equal in the church. All of that stuff is now made clear. So Paul is saying, I have a stewardship responsibility to make the word of God known, to unpack the mystery, that all that is, we know who's coming, we know what he's going to do, but we don't know who it is. So Paul is revealing the mystery. It's Jesus. It's his completed work. And then he says in verse 27, to make known, where am I here? No, wait a minute. Um, to them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So Paul is sometimes called the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's running all over the Greco-Roman world saying, you guys worship an unknown God? You guys worship Zeus? You guys, I want to make known to you the one true and only God. It is Jesus. The riches of the glory of this mystery. And it results in the hope of glory. Back to that word hope. So Paul's saying, my stewardship responsibility is to make the word of God known, to declare it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done. It's all about the hope that he produces. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing, but that's essentially what he's saying. And so that's his stewardship. I see it that way. But the second, let me run through this real quickly, because I hate to leave this. This class should be three hours long, but we, we would not do that. So, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So what could we say is his second stewardship? To foster spiritual maturity among believers. First stewardship is to fully proclaim the word of God. Second stewardship, verse 28 and 29, to foster spiritual maturity. Proclaiming, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature. The word mature is teleon in Greek, complete. It's a word of sanctification, complete in Christ. So it's to foster the spiritual growth and the spiritual maturity. And how does that occur? Warning everyone, I mean, warning everyone in the sense that, listen, Everything you do is really important to God, and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And once you do, that's only the beginning. And the most important thing for me to do to foster spiritual maturity and growth is to teach you. This is Paul speaking. To teach you. Did Paul do that? Yes. He spent three years in Ephesus in his third missionary journey. He spent a long chunk of time, about a year in Corinth, teaching them everywhere Paul went. He plants a church, chooses a group of elders, disciples and teaches them, and then moves on. And that becomes one of the key elements. Go back to first Roman, uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples. That's the imperative. That's the command. How do you do that? By going, baptizing, and teaching. That's how you make disciples. So you are in a class like this with me where what Paul is saying is, is his role in verse 28. is how I see my role in a class like this. To teach you, to help you grow spiritually, to foster the spiritual growth in your lives, in your minds, in your hearts, so that you're getting closer and closer to the goal the Father has for you, to become like his son. Galatians 4.19. You did this with a letter, though. You, did, you never made it. To Colossians, that's right. That's right. He never, he never, as far as we know, he never traveled to Colossae. He did not plant that church. That's right. All right. Now, I mean, you, you follow, 
you follow this chart, it's kind of messy, but how did Paul see his ministry? A ministry of suffering and a ministry of stewardship. But something God had entrusted him to do, what was it? To proclaim the word of God, that hope of Christ, the hope of glory, Jew and Gentile. And secondly, to help foster spiritual maturity in those who come to know Christ through the teaching of the word. It seems to me that he has a goal in mind, though, too, with this letter is to present something to the Colossians that I think is, I, I think primary Colossians is a book that deals with a, a particular heresy, doesn't it? It does. He's addressing a heresy. It's interesting that he uses that word mystery because mm-hmm. you, you're, you're thinking that it's creating. Well, there's, you're, you're, so he's a, it, that word does attach to your mind this idea of some fuzzy thing that people don't know. But in here it says, in the, one of the verses we're looking at, in verse 26, I don't know, uh, it says, even the mystery which has been hid from ages from gener- and from generations, but has, is now made manifest to his saints. And so what he's saying is, listen, you Colossians know the mystery. He's telling them there, you know it. Mm-hmm. He's, and so he's making a point of that, and I think that's part of how he's dealing with this heresy. He's it isn't what these. It isn't. It isn't what these is. false teachers are saying to you. It, there's something else you need to know. You already yeah. know it. It's that's, Jesus. That's exactly no, that's, what that's the correct. false teachers that he's trying to deal with are is the ones who are saying, "Listen, there's some secret stuff out there that you really don't know about, yep. and we're going to give it to you." Okay, mm-hmm. and it's okay. Yep. That's what he's dealing with. That's, among other things, that's what he's doing. You're right. All right. You have your assignment for next week. Are you hanging with? I want to say some more about this next week because we're not done, but I wanted to get the framework of it all done, and we'll go back through that a little bit more next week. Now, next week, finally, after weeks and weeks and weeks, we're going to cross into Chapter 2. We've been in chapter 1 for weeks and weeks and weeks. We're now ready to move into chapter 2 after I say a few more things. Are you with me in all this? Yes. Okay? Real good. It's rich, rich stuff. So I'll pray here and we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth at the center of the mystery. The content of the mystery isn't complicated. It's not just for a few elite spiritual people. It's for everyone. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. Hidden in the Old Testament, if the prophecies are there, we have clarity, but who it is and who fulfills it, we don't know until the New Testament. It's Jesus, the Christ. We thank you for that we know that, and we thank you that it's, I hope everyone in this room has appropriated his finished work by faith. They are a child of God. They're walking and growing. They're beginning to learn more and more each day the worthwhile nature of trusting and depending on him we thank you for the truth that spiritual growth and maturity is is possible thank you too that among so many things we are energized by the hope that's in within us the hope that jesus is coming back for us and going to keep all of his promises he's made to us and we long for that and we uh, we really hold on to that i pray for this young man that Jim brought up a couple of minutes ago, um, dealing with just the realities of three of his children whom he loves and, and is probably willing to do anything for them with cystic fibrosis, questioning your goodness, 
doubting your goodness. Oh, Lord, help to minister to him. Give him your comfort that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians 1. Give him uh, a, a capacity to trust you and rise above the hurt and continue to hold on to his faith, his trust, affirming in his heart that you are good, that it's perhaps someday in eternity this will all make sense. Help him to really trust you and hold on to you. Lord, there's no place he can go. Thank you that Jim is willing to meet with him and just encourage him as well. We're all in this together. We all have individual issues and struggles. We all know people who are struggling with things of life. The difference between the Christian and the unbeliever is we have the hope and trust and confidence that our future is secure, that our position is secure, that our faith and trust in you cannot be shaken. We ask you to just help us to be men and women, men of, uh, of complete confidence and trust in you and men who will represent you well to a very needy world. So we trust you for all of this. Give us a good rest of this day. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.